uh, first service, there's an early clapper that just boom, everyone, oh, I didn't know we were supposed to clap. And I called her out this first service, so I feel like next week is going to be very quiet when I walk out. It's my own fault. Well, well, my name's Andy, and we're in the middle of our, or the end of our Better Than series, talking about how Jesus is better than everything. He's better than everyone, and so he deserves our entire life. The more of our lives that we give to him, uh, the more blessed we really are living in alignment with the good news of Jesus Christ. Specifically, last week, we talked about how belief determines our behavior, or you could look at your behaviors and trace them back to categories of unbelief in your life where you're just not really bought into what the Lord is saying, and so our behaviors are, are not in alignment with the good news of Jesus. Thought of a time where my behavior only changed because my belief finally changed. And it was a few years ago, a new law came out in California, and I got a phone call from my wife, and she led with this. Tell me if you think this is good to lead with this. Don't be mad. I was like, well, what in the world? What in the world happened? Sometimes I just want to call someone and say, don't be mad, and then just talk about how the weather's really nice and mess with their heads a bit. But she leads with, don't be mad. I said, what happened? She goes, I got a ticket. I said, oh, we can't afford a ticket. That's less coffee. What are you talking about? And, and so she told me she was sitting at a red light with three cars in front of her, looking at her phone. The light turned green. She put her phone down, put her hands on the wheel, waited for car one, car two, car three, and then moved her foot from the brake to the gas and started going. And all of a sudden, she gets pulled over by a, a motorcycle cop. And he says, you can't do that. It's illegal. It's illegal to touch your phone at all. You're allowed to have it mounted with a single swipe or a single tap. That's it. And she's like, well, that's news to me. And he says, well, it's a ticket. And so she got this ticket. He was very, he was very kind and loving how he did his job. We weren't upset about that at all. We really just had, <coughs> excuse me, we had no idea. So a month or two later, because I thought that rule was ridiculous, I was sitting at the same exact red light. I'm going to turn my mic off and cough. Non-contagious cough, too. So don't you worry. <laughs> don't you worry at all. I swallowed a gnat or something. I don't know. So I'm sitting at the same light and doing the same exact thing. Now, I'm a, we're very against touching the phones while you're driving. That's just going to, that's going to kill us all one day. And so, same thing. I put the phone down. There's like 15 seconds of, of car inactivity. Finally, the cars move. I pull ahead. Lights go on. Motorcycle cop. I'm like, it's him. I pull over, and I'm like, yes, officer. I was so guilty before he, before he pulled me over and I opened the window, I threw my phone to the other side. <laughs> Such a little sinner. And he's like, were you on your phone? I'm like, oh, my phone that's way over there? That'd be, oh, uh, yeah, maybe. And, but here's the hardest part about all that. He was very polite and kind and just enforcing the law. His name was Sergeant Slaughter. A myriad of cop, he retired, so, I mean, and he did a great job, it was really nice, but I have had nightmares about this man, and, and he has changed my belief, which has led to a change in behavior. I'm like, I cannot afford to believe this is a ridiculous law anymore, I have to believe this law. I can't afford to not do that, but I also believe Sergeant Slaughter is omnipresent. He's everywhere. Even retired, I just feel like there's a motorcycle pulling alongside, looking in my window, and he's, he's coming for me. Even after retirement, I know he will find me one day. When my belief finally changed that this is a law and they care, then my behavior finally changed. Jesus is better, even in the categories of our lives that we've tried to say are off limits to him. 
Jesus, don't open this door. I'm happy to let you work with these areas of my life, but don't open this door. And we say it's off limits. Even the areas of behavior that show our deepest unbelief and, and our greatest stubbornness when it comes to doubting that God is good, even in those areas, if we give him that part of our lives, he is better. He's better than that. And so we're gonna see three different ways that Jesus is better this morning. First, Jesus is better than giving in to sin. Hebrews chapter 12, verse four says, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Jesus is better than giving in to sin, but sin isn't going to tell you that. Sin's going to say, it's going to be amazing, you're going to get away with it, no consequences, why not? But it's just a lie. It's not true. It's not like sin just like, you know, oh yeah, I misunderstood. Yeah, it is going to devastate your life and your relationships. It's just a lie from the enemy of our souls. We have to choose if we believe the good news about Jesus, then that will affect our behaviors. The author, in, in kind of almost a rude way, is saying to them, you haven't really even tried to resist sin. He's like, have you even shed blood in your attempt to resist sin? I have no idea what he's talking about in, in that passage, except for maybe mocking them a little bit, saying like, Let's stop lying to ourselves. You haven't even tried to walk in the other direction of sin. Sin needs to have a struggle against it, or we can default to it at times. And so we're told in verse 14, make every effort. There should be effort to resisting sin to allow the grace of God to transform our lives. So we're given a list of categories that show our deepest doubt and our most stubborn unbelief that we have to decide, are we going to give God all of our lives? The first category we're told is verse 14, that we should live in peace with everyone. And then we're like, I'm a peaceful person, I'm a reasonable person with most people. But the scriptures say with, with everyone. Jesus emphasized this in the gospels when he said, oh, you're happy that you bless your best friend? Even the tax collectors do that. The, the Jewish people that sold out their, their brothers and worked for the occupying Roman government to take the taxes, they were considered the worst people in that time. And he's like, even the people you think are the worst are good to their friends and family. He's like, that's not the call of a Christian. No, we are to even love our enemies to show ourselves that we are like our Father in heaven. This is difficult because it says with everyone, but it's worth it because loving the undeserving, making peace with the undeserving illustrates the gospel. It's one of the clearest pictures that we have received forgiveness, so we extend it. And so as much as is possible on us, we will work towards peace. But it will take some effort to do that. And so we should repent often of our own sins so that when somebody sins against us, we realize I'm a sinner like they are. They're having a bad day. They're having a grumpy day. It's not the end of the world. We should pray for those that are bothering us and even bless them because it's hard to not like someone that you're actively praying for and, and trying to bless. My, my wife and I had a chance to uh, live this out. And I feel like the Lord gave us grace to do this, but we've been trying to meet more and more of our neighbors 
Uh, so we bought a basketball hoop that has those wheels, but you, you fill it with water, so you really want to just leave it in one spot. So we put it right on the outside of our curb in the street, really wide streets. There are six other homes with basketball hoops placed exactly there. We're out there taking shots and uh, basketball shots. We weren't taking shots. <laughs> I was like, I didn't say that the other two services. <laughs> I also didn't do that. Um, taking jump shots and... Um, and then we're meeting neighbors. It's working. We're like, it's working. You know, we're meeting neighbors and, you know, they're, they're talking to us. Well, the next day, one of our neighbors says, you know, the city doesn't really like the basketball hoops there. I was like, the city? What do you mean the city doesn't like? There's six hoops like that. I, mean, well, I don't know what you're talking about. The day after that, code enforcement shows up at our door. Shannon's like, you won't believe it. Don't get mad. <laughs> she, she, you, won't, you won't believe it. And they show up and they say, listen, we don't drive around looking to ruin little kids' dreams of being professional basketball players. We got a phone call. And we're like, oh, and uh, it doesn't really matter, but whom? Who called you? And they're like, yeah, we're not going to tell you that. And we, we knew who it was. And the sad thing was later that day, all six basketball hoops had to be dragged onto the property. They're laying down sideways. And where normally at night all these kids are playing basketball, it's just grumpy silence that only one person person was happy with. But we were committed right away to saying, first of all, we're assuming it's that person and it seems likely, but we're just going to leave, hey, assumptions are dangerous, so we're going to leave that there. But we are committed to loving the person that we believe did this. We're like, you know what? It's, it's more important that we love them, that we are a good neighbor, that we can point them towards Christ than that we settle, hey, that wasn't really cool with us. But I've decided not to invite them to church until after I shared that illustration with you. I at least got to get, I at least got to get the illustration in there, tell the story. But next week, if there's someone new here, be do not mention that at all. All right, I'm totally fine. Listen, it's difficult to live at peace with everyone. We're also told in verse 15 that we got to be careful that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble. There's danger in that. And there's danger in that because people actually hurt us. They, 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 they do things against us that are unjust, they're wrong, they're unfair. And when we feel like there's no justice, when we feel helpless that nothing's going to change, we can move from anger to bitterness. And the, the scriptures are telling us, be careful that you don't hold on to that bitterness. It's going to grow and cause trouble. It will never be good for you. Never. I've heard two quotes that really stuck with me about bitterness. The first is that bitterness is just like drinking rat poison and expecting the other person to die, right? It hurts you more than it hurts them. It feels like you're hurting them and punishing them, silent treatment or bringing it up again or whatever, but you're really hurting yourself. And then Corey Ten Boom says, forgiveness is like letting a prisoner go only to discover that you are the prisoner. Right? Un being unforgiving and having bitterness, it hurts us more than anyone else. Now, here's a crazy statement, but you are never more like God than when you extend forgiveness to someone who is undeserving. And there's not really an option. You read the Bible, and, and we are called to forgiveness, and that's it. There's no, there's no other option. We will rot away in bitterness, or we will choose to forgive as an understanding that we have been forgiven by God himself. And so we've got to be careful about bitterness. So when we feel that initial anger over injustice, you might need to deal with the situation. You might need to make some changes, have a conversation, but, but quickly forgive in your hearts and maybe even stop talking about it so it doesn't continue to, to become a bitter thing. We're told in verse 16, this one's super comfortable, that no one is sexually immoral. 
right? It's, and now, this is difficult because newsflash, sex feels good. It was designed to feel good. God designed it. God created us, and he created the union of marriage. He designed it for one man and one woman to have sex in marriage, to unite the husband and wife, to build a strong family. So anything outside of that is sin. So pornography is, is sin, because it rots the soul and the mind and it is destroying our society and leading to so much slavery across the world. It's horrible. We need to be done with it. Sex before marriage is not God's plan. It is sin. Sex outside of marriage is sin. And I say this passionately because I know the shame and the guilt that comes from 22, 24 years ago when I was looking at pornography, when I was chasing after girls for sexual pleasure. And that wasn't where I had ultimate fulfillment in life. In fact, it gave the enemy a foothold in my life to, to really weaken me. But there was forgiveness available, and I sought God for that forgiveness. Now, it's worth it to follow God's design, right? God wants us to have great sex within marriage. God wants us to have strong families because there's a commitment between these two people being unified through sex. And the, the fancy word for it is procreation, but, but God wants cute, chubby babies all over the world. He wants us to make babies, and the cutest babies are the chubbiest babies. We used to tell Abigail's age by how many rolls she had in her leg. It worked until nine months old, and then the poor thing started walking and crawling, and she's a thin little tall girl now. It's sad. I missed the chubby legs. But listen, and she will hate me forever for mentioning that, so don't say anything. Listen, God's plan is good. It strengthens the family. It strengthens the, the marriage union. It's a good plan. And so everything outside of that is sin. Even living together before marriage. If we, if we say, no, I love you, but there's a, you know, for financial reasons and to test things out, we're gonna live together for a season. Why would you say we're building this life together that has a weak foundation? Even secular stats all point to that cohabitation before marriage increases the risk of divorce. So why would we say, I love you, I care about you, but we're gonna build this really weak thing that is probably gonna fail. That, there's forgiveness for that, but there needs to be repentance and moving in the direction of marriage if that's what God's called you to do. It weakens the relationship. And we're told that God judges all sin. Hebrews 13.4 says, marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the, the adulterer and all who are sexually immoral. Why would we say in this loving thing that I'm doing, building this relationship, I want to do it in a way that God can't bless it? That's crazy, right? To say, I'm going to do this in a way where God's favor won't be on this until we make this change. If we would just trust God's design, I've said this before, but if we would just commit to obeying one of the Ten Commandments and say, God is brilliant, let's obey one of the Ten Commandments. The Seventh Commandment, do not commit adultery, which is basically keep sex within marriage only. Outside of that, it's off limits. If everyone in the world agreed, okay, it's reasonable to do one of the Ten Commandments, we would have utopia. Here's what the world would look like. There would be zero sexually transmitted diseases because there'd be no way for it to transmit. It would die off in one generation. There'd be no affairs, there'd be no sex trafficking, no rape, no porn. There would be less abortion because more kids would be born into a family that wanted the children. There would be less orphans for the same reason and less divorce. This is the world we wanna live in, but we think we're gonna get to it by rebelling against God and making up our own rules. God isn't a killjoy. God is saying this is where the greatest happiness and the least pain exist. I've created a safe place for your joy. 
but it takes effort. We need to repent, no matter how long it's, it's been in these situations, trust God's design, and move towards it. And moving toward it could be moving towards breaking the relationship up if it wasn't, if it's not going to work out in marriage and you shouldn't get married because of, you know, how the relationship is, or if it's towards getting married. And so there's been lots of people over the last few years that have, that have come to me and told me, we want to do things right in God's eyes. They're always using that phrase. We want to do things right in God's eyes. We've been living together for this amount of time, but now we want to get married. Will, will you help us? We say, yes, the Lord is calling you to this. And we, and we meet with them and we encourage them and we, and we help them to work towards getting married. And so if the Holy Spirit has been convicting your hearts and, and, no, and showing you that you need to move towards this, we're sharing this with you not to say, get out of the church. You're, we're, we're saying, no, we want to help you move towards God's design. And so on April 15th, we're having a big cornerstone wedding. If, if you have excuse after excuse about why you're not getting married, we've got the time, we've got the location, it's going to be completely free, we're going to make it beautiful, we're going to have a professional photographer, we're going to give you a gift as you move towards God's design for marriage. So if you just text the word wedding, then we're going to do that. We, we like the Lord, we love you as you are, but love doesn't leave anyone in a bad situation. Love, love has to speak the truth. And if you're wondering why I'm prying into a personal part of your lives, Hebrews 13, 17 says, when it comes to leaders, they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. It's because I've been called to do that. I've been called to have the uncomfortable conversations that lead to the greatest hope and joy in our lives. Verse 16 also has a different category. It says, also, don't be godless like Esau. Don't be godless like Esau. What does that word godless there mean? Well, it means unholy or profane. It means you're, you're living as if God doesn't exist at all. You make the rules. You decide what happens, and God doesn't get a vote in that. Saying, be careful. If your category of, of protected sin wasn't mentioned, he says, be careful. Be holy. Verse 14, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Now, the only reason we get to heaven isn't because we've achieved holiness in our actions, Right? Jesus was perfectly holy, and he gives us his holiness when we surrender our lives to him. That's the only reason why we have a right relationship with God. But as our belief that that good news happened is, is really thought through, our behaviors start to change, and God gives us grace to live differently in ways we never thought we could. And so why would we choose to be godless when the reward is a closer relationship with Jesus? We will see God even clearer as we trust his promises. So Jesus is better than giving in to sin, but Jesus is also better than getting away with it, than, than getting away with your sin. Look at verse five. It says, and have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and don't lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastens everyone he accepts as a son. So endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you're not disciplined and everyone, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you're not a legitimate child. You're not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good 
in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained with it. Jesus is better than getting away with it. Often as we, as we follow through and commit a sin, we just hope, I hope nobody ever finds out. I hope I can take this to the grave. Listen, that's not the best option. <laughs> the best option is getting caught and disciplined by the Lord for a bunch of reasons that we're gonna talk about. If you have a heart of just saying, God, why can't you just leave me alone in this area? Just leave me alone. You're describing hell. People describe hell as the absence of the presence of God. Don't ask for God to leave you alone. Ask for God to double down no matter how much it hurts. Now, the truth is, is that God is omnipresent. God is everywhere, right? And so God is present in heaven and we experience his favor, his mercy, and his forgiveness. And God in some form is present in hell, but you experience his justice and the wrath against sin that is poured out. But God is everywhere. I want God to deal with me now, to work on me now. Discipline comes from love and it leads to encouragement. It comes from love because God knows. God knows the future of a rebellious child that isn't disciplined, what kind of a monster they turn into. And God cares enough to do the hard work of discipline, even if I feel embarrassed and, and ashamed. Some of those feelings aren't even right. God, God loves to hang out with sinners and to transform them and to, to remind them that he loves them dearly. And so this is encouraging actually for us because it proves our adoption into God's family because you only discipline your kids. My uh, little sister was in town with her three children and, and husband, and they've been staying at our house. And so it, the cousins have been having a blast, having sleepovers and way too much ice cream. I've been very careful, even though they've been very well behaved, to only speak to my children with my guidance. So I'm like, Dean kids, quiet it down. <laughs> Dean kids, get your shoes on. Dean kids, we're doing this. It's not my job to talk to my, my sister's kids, you know? And, and, and she's done a great job of, of parenting them. They both have, they have a sweet family. But the fact that I discipline my kids, it's just what you do for your own children. You do the hard work because you don't want them to continue to hurt themselves or hurt other people. And God is doing that for the same goals. He's, he's tired of us hurting ourselves, shooting ourselves in the foot and hurting other people. He wants us to be a good neighbor to spread the good news about Jesus. If you don't receive any correction, you're not legitimate. You're not actually a child of God. Don't pray to get away with it. Pray and say, Lord, forgive me. You've caught me. You see it already. Help me. Transform me. So what should our response be? Well, it says for human fathers, verse 9, it says we respected them for it. They did the best they could, and we respected them for it. And for our heavenly Father, we submit to this. We don't short-circuit it. We don't try and go somewhere where no one knows about our, our issues. No, we submit ourselves to the discipline that God has for us. And the result of God's discipline Verse 11 is very honest. It's just painful, right? When God disciplines us, it is painful. It's not punishment. Discipline is training and righteousness. It's not punishment, but it is painful. It says no one considers it pleasant when they're going through that kind of training, when they're caught and told, no, that's not how we're gonna do it. But it's less painful than being left alone and turning into a monster that hurts people that you love. We don't want that either. We want the Lord to do this. Verse 10 says he does this for our good, so that we may share in his holiness. And it's for our good. There are times where as an earthly father, I, I punish more than discipline because I'm just angry. And so you're, this, is, this is a new rule. Just, just yesterday, I think, or the day before, where I looked at one of my kids and I said, for a, for a month, you can't have any bubble gum. For a month, 
because I saw them about, to, or I saw them drop the bubble gum on the floor. Something that I, I, I do sometimes, not on the floor in the church, right? But I'm like, I litter bubble gum sometimes, but it just, I saw that in, in them and I was like, you, you can't have bubble gum for a month. And later I realized I was just angry, mad at myself. And I was like, just so you know, I'm retracting that and saying for a week. And she said, I'm, uh, he or she said, I am sorry. Right? And so, listen, we do that out of anger. God does it for our good that we may share in his holiness. Verse 11 says, and it will produce a harvest of righteousness and peace. It will produce the life that we want but can't attain without God or his discipline. So Jesus is better than giving into sin, getting away with sin, and Jesus is better than giving up on faith. Look at verse one of chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured so much opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Jesus is better than us just giving up and saying, I can't do this, I can't handle it, it's too much. I just give up on my walk with God, give up on my faith. I'm gonna give in to sin and said, no. The reason we know that we can endure to the end that we're given is others have made it. It says, therefore, verse one, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, Speaking of the previous chapter, chapter 11, that gave us that hall of faith, all those sinners that were remembered for their faith in God and not giving up. They were going to continue to trust in the promises of God, although they failed to do that at times in their life. Others have made it. So how can we make it? We make it by repenting of our sin, running with perseverance, and remembering Jesus. First, it says in verse 1, throw off everything that hinders you and sin that so easily trips us up, is how the NLT puts it in that translation. Repent of our sin. And, and it seems like there's two categories. There's this, these weights or these things that hinder us that might not even be considered sin, but as we consider the spiritual journey we, we are on, and how limited our time is on earth, sometimes we give up things that aren't even sin so we can run a little faster. When I was a basketball player, I would wear a warm-up jersey before the game, but you had to take that off because those jerseys came, came down with sleeves, and so you, you take off the jersey and you wear more of the tank top jersey after that to play. Athletes take this seriously, right? They say, what's gonna hinder me? I'm getting a certain haircut. Or swimmers are like, I'm wearing a Speedo as I'm going for this. I'm like, I just prefer if you were going after the silver or the gold medal instead of the, you know, silver or the bronze medal instead of the gold medal. Why don't you just wear some nice, you know, bathing suits that you wear to the beach instead of the Speedos? I don't know if we want USA to win that bad that we have to, to see this, you know? But hey, they're like, no, it's hindering me. I've gotta go for it. Every, everything I can do to win. I don't wanna be tripped up. Some things in life that, even we enjoy that are in the sin category, they're not compatible with a race with God. They're not compatible. They will just trip us up as we are trying to run a race with endurance. And so we gotta throw those things off and run with endurance, the race marked out for us. To complete the race, you need to know the course. If you're running a mile on track, it's likely three, uh, four laps around that will get you the mile on different, different you know, cross-country fields and different things, you, you've got to follow the markers to make sure you're at the right amount of, for the race. It's marked out differently. The interesting thing about our lives is everyone's race is marked out differently, isn't it? Right? God allows different struggles and trials and obstacles in our lives that he doesn't necessarily set up for other people. 
And we can get bitter about that or we can trust in God's goodness and say, no, I'm going to trust that God has orchestrated everything in my life for my good and for the good of his kingdom. And I'm gonna trust that even though my race has been marked out differently. We often think, yeah, I'm, I'm just gonna be the best. I'm gonna be the best Christian. I'm gonna be perfect. I'm gonna, I'm gonna aim for that gold medal. But we're hindered. Sometimes we have an inability in us. I think when I think of racing, I think of the 1992 Olympics where there was a, a British racer, Derek Redmond, that was favored to win the gold medal. Everyone's like, all right, he's gonna win. And unless anything bad happens, he's going to win. And I think when you look at how this race turned out, you realize we line up more with his story than we do with the gold medal, but that's okay. Actually, I think this is important. We're gonna watch a quick video on Derek Redmond's Olympic story from 1992. Can you imagine uh, everyone expecting you to get the gold medal and then your body just gives out, your hamstring gives out? And the man that came alongside him is Jim Redmond, his father. And you see him constantly telling people, it's okay, I'm his dad. It was completely illegal for him to be there, but he's like, I'm his dad, back up. And he comes alongside Derek and he says, you don't have to finish, it's okay, let's stop. And he says, no, get me to the finish line. And his father walks with him there to the finish line. And it ended up being such a more beautiful story. I don't, no one remembers who won the gold in that race in 1992. But a lot of people remember this story of a father and a son. And the father saying, it's okay, I'm going to get you to the finish line. It's, we, we identify more with Derek Redmond's story than we think. Right, I'm, I'm gonna do the best, Lord. Don't worry, Lord, I'm gonna do perfect. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna fix this. I'll stop that sin. I can stop that habit. And the truth is, is we're, we're broken because of sin. And sin is deep within us. And only because the Father comes alongside us and helps us get to the finish line can we endure till the end. And he whispers to us, it's okay. Jesus is on your team and he already won the race. We've already got the medal. You're already going to heaven, but I'm gonna help you endure to the end. I'm gonna help you finish. You don't do this alone. We run with perseverance because we run with the Lord, but we keep our eyes on the Lord. It says, remember Jesus fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. We, we are gifted faith and Jesus is going to grow our faith. He's going to perfect our faith. It's not our job to do that apart from him. He was able to finish the race. He endured even the cross because he knew what blessing it would be for each of us to have his holiness given to us as we surrender our lives to him. Jesus did that for us. And so relief in this life doesn't come from giving up on the race. Or, or, or changing the racetrack and the scenarios and the details of our life or cheating, relief comes from leaning on God and saying, Jesus did it all, but God is going to get me to the end. God is going to finish this for me. Verse three says, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. I've asked the worship team to come out and, and close our, our series in a special song to give us time to really process that Jesus really is better than everything else. And yet we're, we're still kind of holding on to baggage. We're still holding on to some habits and saying, oh, Jesus, don't touch this habit yet. I'm not ready for that. And we need to let go. We need to throw off everything that hinders us. We need to get rid of the sin that, that so easily trips us up. And so whatever it is the Lord has been putting on your heart, we're gonna have a prayer team available during this last song. Whether you are weary and feeling like giving up or, or whether you are just ready to finally confess some sin or, or you just came here with a burden 
that is so deep that you can't leave here without unburdening yourself and receiving prayer. We have a prayer team that will be so happy to pray with you. And so, Father, Lord, as we think about how you're better than everything else, Lord, that Jesus is really what it's all about, we naturally look at our lives and realize we don't live in perfect alignment with that view. You're calling us to change. As we look at our behaviors, we realize we don't fully believe. And so, Lord, increase our faith. Lord, Lord, help us to overcome our unbelief. Lord, grow our faith, perfect it. We thank you that Jesus has secured our salvation. But Lord, if we're limping around in sin, we ask, Father, that you would come alongside us and help us to endure. But part of that is bringing things into the light, asking for help, bearing one another's burdens. And so we do that as a body of Christ, as the church. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me as we worship the Lord and please come forward if you need prayer.